0: Good morning, Ruth chapter 3. There's a particular kind of thrill that I have in mind, uh, which I'm sure a number of you in this room would be familiar with, that you've experienced before, but maybe not every one of you. A good number of you, though, I'm sure know what I'm talking about, this particular kind of exhilarating, uh, I don't know how else to... It's a terrifying sort of exhilaration and i'm talking about the rush that comes with making your feelings known to this one person that you desire a romantic relationship with have you been there have you done that and telling them for the first time asking them on that first date or getting to somehow letting them know that you're interested in them and that you just want to be more than friends in that moment when those words that you've rehearsed in your head have left your mouth, they have flown through the air, entered into the ears and the brain of this, this other person who you like. And in those seconds before they respond, so you've, you've put it out there, before they say anything back to you, you don't know how this is going to go. This could be one of the best moments of your life, or this could become very awkward. You don't know yet. And in that moment, when everything's on the line, your heart's beating faster, you're trying to keep it together, you want to play this cool, because on the inside, uh, you're, you're, you're going nuts, but on the outside, you're it's a rush. And if you haven't experienced that before for yourself, you're missing out. I'm glad that maybe, you, maybe you're glad that you haven't had to do that. You don't need that kind of drama in your life, and maybe that's not what some of you are up for, but Tell you what, it's as exciting as it is nerve-wracking. Uh, I've done that twice in my life. First time didn't go so well, but it was still very exciting. Uh, you live and you learn, and it probably worked out for the best anyway, now that I look back on it. And the second time, well, I married her, uh, but Joyce was very kind to me. She, she didn't make it particularly difficult. She gave me plenty of hints and, and dropped encouraging signs long before I figured out that just maybe that this, this girl was there that I should be asking her. And she was just patient enough with me to allow me the privilege of doing the asking. I found out later that she was actually running out of patience. I was cutting it close. Uh, so much so that if I hadn't asked her that night when, when, when I did, she planned in that same conversation that night, she would ask me out. Uh, now, I'd be interested to hear your story if you are a woman and you're the one who had to do the asking. I imagine these days the traditional roles of who initiates what, uh, who does the asking is up for grabs, and that would be very much in keeping with the culture of our day. Uh, And that question might not even make sense anymore with the marriage equality stuff now that I think about it. But for Joyce, she was thinking, I've made myself available. I'm here, and if this guy isn't going to ask me out, I'll do it myself which is not dissimilar to this part of the story of Ruth that we're up to today, Ruth chapter 3, where we see it's the women who make the first move. Naomi, the mother-in-law, sees this opportunity and she plays the role of the matchmaker. It seems like this is, first of all, her idea. And Ruth, this young widow, she goes along with it. And it seems super risky what she has to do to get Boaz's Attention. Chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he's finished eating and drinking. Uh, for those of you who've missed the story so far, let me fill you in. Uh, Naomi, our matchmaker, she's uh, almost a lifetime ago. She'd left Israel with her husband to escape a famine with her two sons. But you soon find out Naomi's husband dies in the land of Moab, and her boys um, they get married in Moab to these foreign women. But tragically, both her, both her sons also die. And so with all the men out of the picture, Naomi comes back to Israel with one of her daughters-in-law uh, who comes back with her. And that daughter-in-law is Ruth, this, this young widow. And they're in serious trouble because even when they get back to Israel, it's harvest time, but they don't have any other crops. They don't own anything there. And they don't have any money to buy anything. These two women find themselves very vulnerable. Naomi is a senior citizen. Ruth is an outsider. And she's got no family here other than her mother-in-law. Her particular ethnicity doesn't help. She's from Moab. And there's some tension on that border between the Israeli people and the people of Moab. They're from neighbouring countries that don't get along. And so to get food, Ruth has to go look for leftover grain from other people's field during the harvest time. People will be out harvesting their crops because it's harvest season. And you can imagine when you're, um, when you're harvesting, every so often you might miss a stalk of grain here or there. And so Ruth, she'd go and ask permission from people who owned the fields to follow after whoever's on the tools so that she could perhaps pick up the scraps and leftovers of the crop that they missed when they went over it the first time. It's what Israel's law allowed. It's, I guess, their social welfare policy to help the poor and the disenfranchised. And it wasn't much, but it was something. And the first field that Ruth happens to wander into to glean the leftovers, the field belonged to a man called Boaz, who's actually from the same clan as her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Boaz is really kind to Ruth. He lets her stay in his field and even gives her way more grain than just the leftovers. And he's kind to her, we're told, because he's heard a bit about her story, how she's lost her husband, how she's come to Israel from a different country, how she's come because uh, she's here to help look after her mother-in-law, this mother-in-law who has lost everything. So Ruth could have stayed in Moab and stayed with her own family, but she chose to jump ship to leave her people, leave her gods, and go with Naomi back to Israel because she loved Naomi and she wanted to help her. And last week we saw how Boaz, you know, he's an older man. He's respected and a man of standing. Uh, That's how chapter 2 introduces us to him. And he's a man of means. So Boaz invites Ruth to stay and collect from his fields until the whole harvest is over. And he looks out for her. Uh, Which brings us to uh, chapter 3, where Naomi's been thinking, uh, since perhaps the first day that Ruth came back from Boaz's field, Boaz. Ruth. Boaz. Ruth. Boaz and Ruth. And it's not just because he's well off and she's needy. It's not just that they they might happen to get along and they've been kind to each other. No, the big thing is that Boaz is part of the clan of her now deceased husband. And he's not just any part of the clan. He's a close enough relative to be one of the family's guardian redeemers. If you have a Bible with footnotes, you might have a note there about uh, what a guardian redeemer is. And it might tell you that a guardian redeemer is a legal term for someone who has an obligation to redeem a relative who's gotten themselves in some serious difficulty. There's nothing quite like it in our culture today. Um, Maybe the idea of godparents... Is a tiny, tiny bit like this, there's a shadow of this, where, you know, Godparents, you nominate a couple of people to be responsible for the spiritual education of your child. Or maybe something like a legal custodian that you might name nowadays in your will, who take care of your children should something happen to you. But even that's not quite the same, because a guardian redeemer is so much more than that. Guardian redeemers were close relatives, are often a brother, who would go to serious lengths to ensure the well-being of a family, uh, the family of his brother, should they get into trouble. And there's this special provision that's described in the law, especially for the case where a man dies and leaves his widow, and they don't have any children, so that, that man's line in, in Israel would end, because there's no children to carry it on. And they don't have an inheritance to pass on, the land that belonged to that man it would get dispersed. But to protect the widow in that case, and the family line of this deceased brother, a guardian redeemer could step in to help, says the law in Deuteronomy. Let's take a look at how this part of the law works. Uh, Deuteronomy 25 says this. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. It's a strange kind of law, a provision in the law. And in that case, as you can imagine, the marriage isn't so much about romantic love, but about the survival of that family's name and the welfare and the provision for this this woman who would otherwise be left to fend for herself. And At least this way, she's, she's cared for and there's hope for a future generation and a family to be built through this marriage with the guardian redeemer. It's a very different way of thinking about family and the obligations that we have to each other and as a society. It's a bit sort of icky when you think about sort of your brothers and sisters and their spouses. When you th- but it's sort of a, a, this guardian redeemer thing was in Israel's law and Israel's culture. Not very commonly invoked or taken up, but it was a thing. And people knew about it. Naomi certainly knows about this. In fact, the first thing that pops into Naomi's head when she hears about Boaz for the first time, Ruth comes home that first day when she was working in Boaz's field, and she's got all this food, and the first thing Naomi asks her is, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she'd been working. She said, the name of the man I work with today is Boaz. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He's not sh- stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. This is on Naomi's radar right from the start. And so maybe Naomi's been hatching this uh, matchmaking plan ever since way back at the start of harvest season. But now is the end of harvest. It's been three months and... It's now or never, because Ruth was only invited to work in Boaz's field, if you remember, until the end of the season, and that time's come. And so Naomi sends Ruth to get Boaz's attention and to bring this proposition to him, and it's risky business what Naomi's asking of Ruth, but she does it. You see it there in verse three, chapter 3, verse 3. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother in law told her to do. Think about that. She is putting herself in a very compromising situation. She's already a very vulnerable young woman. Who's going to help a foreigner without a husband in the world? And she's supposed to go alone, at night, to this place where it's a place for men. Imagine, you know, the wharfs and the warehouses there, where basically it's a very blokey environment. She's meant to go, dressed up beautifully, wearing perfume, making herself as attractive as she can. To go and find a man after a hard day's work at the end of a busy season of harvest. And to find him when he would have just finished feasting and drinking with his mates and is turning in for the night. And they're sleeping in the grain shed because that's apparently what you do during harvest season. It saves you some time. You get up in the morning and you work till you drop. And you do it again. And she is supposed to, in the middle of the night, go to a place where only men are supposed to be. There's no women in the threshing floor, just men. Find where Boaz is sleeping pull up the bottom of his blanket, get under there, lie down next to him at his feet, and see what happens. Thanks, (laughs) Mum. Now tell me, I'm not the only one who can imagine that things could go very badly for Ruth. What on earth is Naomi thinking, sending her daughter-in-law, who she loved, into that kind of potentially dangerous and compromising situation, which... Any idiot can tell you, Ruth will be, can be taken advantage of so easily here. As it turns out, maybe Naomi and Ruth knew that Boaz is a man of integrity. He is a man of integrity. Look at verse 7. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. "'Who are you?' he asked. "'I am your servant, Ruth,' she said. "'Spread the corner of your garment over me, "'since you are a guardian-redeemer of our family.'" Put yourself in Boaz's shoes. You are a man woken up in the middle of the night and in your bed is this beautiful young woman who wasn't there when you fell asleep. This isn't isn't a dream, this is reality. But here she is, you two are alone. What is your self-control like? And he says, who are you? Which is fair enough. Ruth makes herself known, and then Ruth says the most interesting thing, I think. She says, um, you see it up there, spread the corner of your garment over me. Or literally, uh, it says, the, the, the word there is, spread the wings of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer. And I pick up that word, spread the wings of your garment over me, because she seems to use the language that echoes what Boaz said to her that very first day that she met when they first met, Boaz blessed her and said this to her. Um, Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. And here it is. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz had prayed for her that God would reward her, that God on whose wings she'd come to take refuge. And now he gets the chance to be the answer to his own prayer. She's asking him to spread his wings over her, to be that refuge that she needs. This is a marriage proposal, but it's a proposal from a position of weakness. This isn't an impressive man in a suit with a diamond ring promising the world to his girlfriend. No, this is a desperate woman asking for protection and redemption from the mess of a situation that she's in. She's asking him to rescue her in a Deuteronomy 25 kind of way. The harvest time's over. There's no more gleaning. There's no more food for her until the next year. And to Boaz's credit, he recognises that. He doesn't interpret her actions as a sexual advance. Even though this is, this is an encounter of a very intimate nature, what he sees is how vulnerable she is. What he hears is that she's genuinely asking for his protection, for his help, and to come under his wings for him to look after her. That He hears that she's asking if he might be willing to marry her to do that. And to bring her into that most intimate of human relationships. She's popped the big question. And now she's thinking, how is he going to respond? This is a big moment in the story. Uh, Verse 10. Boa says, The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you're a woman of noble character. He says, Yes. You see, his words, he's quite flattering and he's full of respect for her. He acknowledges how how kind Ruth has been. Um, She's been kind to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And even in this risky situation that she puts herself in, she's doing this in part now to secure a future for her mother-in-law, to ensure the family name continues. And quite humbly, as he thinks about himself, he says, you've been so kind to me, Ruth, in choosing me to ask To marry you. Because he knows he's not exactly a young man. Uh, He doesn't think he's a great catch. And he says, Everyone knows how fantastic a person you are, Ruth. I will be honored to do all that you ask. But there's one more kink in the tale. It's not happily ever after yet. See, Boaz fully intends and he, he wants to help Ruth, but he's such a trustworthy and stand-up kind of guy, he, he knows he has to do this properly. He does this by the book. And as much as he likes her and respects her, as much as he wants to help her, he knows that if she's looking for a guardian-redeemer, he knows that there's technically another even closer relative who was ahead of him in line to do the guardian-redeemer role. Verse 12. Boaz says, Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Boaz felt it was only right. The only proper thing to do would be to consult with this other man first. Because it was technically that man's responsibility and that man's right before it was his. Not just on a relational level, but there's property involved in this as well. There's sort of legal technicalities in this, and he says, no, let's do this right. But as a token of good faith, Boaz gives this woman a gift. He didn't want her to leave empty-handed. Uh, so we find verse 14. So she lay at his feet until till morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor, because that would ruin her reputation. Uh, he also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law... Uh, Naomi asked, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother in law empty handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, till you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Now, that's not exactly the most romantic gift in the world, you could imagine. You ask someone to, to marry you and they give you a sack of grain. It's a very practical one. And maybe it's a cover for, you know, if someone did catch them and she, maybe, maybe Ruth was needing food and so she went to the, to the, to the barn to, to get some, some barley and that could be a bit of... Or maybe he just knows that it's a very practical gift which might be even more appreciated, to be honest, than a, an engagement ring in a situation that Ruth's in. But we end this episode, this chapter, on a bit of a cliffhanger. Because it's looking positive, but this love story balances on a knife edge. Because this other man, who we haven't met yet, this other man may still come between Ruth and Boaz before the day is out. And we'll have to wait until chapter 4 to find out what happens. Uh, Next week, actually, we have um, Baptist World Aid, a representative coming, so we won't be doing Ruth chapter 4 then. It'll be two weeks before we hit the end of the story, or you could just read it yourself. Um, But for the moment, uncertainty still hangs in the air. And, And uncertainty has been all throughout this chapter in particular. Even starting right from the beginning, Naomi's plan was pretty dicey, to be honest. Full of uncertainty. Lots of things could have gone wrong with the plan. And when Boaz finds Ruth at his feet in the middle of the night and she pops that question as the reader, you really do feel for her. She needs redemption. And she's so vulnerable. But who knows how this Boaz is going to respond. It reminds me of that dating reality TV show, The Bachelor. Has anyone watched that show? Has anyone lost credibility for me that I've mentioned that show? <laughs> you probably know how it works. Uh, each season, there's one eligible bachelor or bachelorette and a whole slew of would-be suitors at the start of the season. And over the course of the season, as they, as they go, they take turns going on dates with the bachelor, and they compete with each other for, for time spent with this guy. And each week, there's a rose ceremony. And if the bachelor doesn't give you a rose, by the end of the week, you go home. It's pretty cut it. And so all these girls are trying to get the bachelor's attention, trying to get some quality time in with this, with this man who they've just met. And uh, they do whatever they can to stay in the game. Sometimes because they're just playing the game, and they want a bit of airtime and they want to you know, boost their profiles. Sometimes because, well, as the season progresses, the number of people get less and less. And what often happens is that the final few girls left have all developed actual significant feelings, so it would seem, for this one guy they fall in love with him some of them really do and it's not i don't i think i don't think it's just the magic of television these women come on the show wanting to fall in love and because of the incredible dates they've been on because of everything they share together in that very intense environment some of them develop real feelings for the bachelor and in order to win and get the guy, these girls have to bear their souls. It's, it's excruciating watching some of these moments with them because and that's what the producers of the show want to happen. These girls have to bear their souls and share with him exactly how they're feeling about him. Because unless they can honestly say by the end of the season that they love him, and unless he believes them, they don't stand a chance. They put themselves in a very vulnerable situation. That's how the show works. Because it's the bachelor who has the power, he's the one who gets to choose, and so they have to make it perfectly clear how they feel. Whereas on the other hand, it seems the bachelor is contractually obligated not to tell these women exactly how he feels about them until the very last episode of the season. It's so cruel. You can imagine, though, if he did tell early in the season which girl he actually liked, there's no point watching the rest of the season. Yeah, it's game over. I remember there was this one season where at the final episode, the bachelor decided to choose... None of the two women. And I suspect he probably knew ages back that he wasn't, he wasn't that interested in a long-term relationship with anyone on the show. But what's he going to do? He's contractually obligated to play along and see through however many episodes, to get through all the drama, to visit the hometowns, to do all that. But those two poor women at the end, they were actually in love with him, and they told him as much. thank God that that's not how Jesus treats us. Boaz reminds me of Jesus. And we never have to guess what's really on Jesus' heart. When we come to him vulnerable, when we come to him in need of his redemption, when we sit honestly and when we open up to him and we ask him to be our refuge when we admit that our lives are a mess and we ask him to redeem us and to protect us, Jesus doesn't leave us guessing. He doesn't leave us guessing whether we're good enough for him. He doesn't, he doesn't leave us guessing whether he's willing to take us. He has made the first move already. He's come to us even though we deserve nothing. And we can see his love. We can see the lengths he will go to to redeem his people. We see it at the cross where he's given everything to save us. He offers us a place in the family of God. If we open up our lives to him, if we fully entrust ourselves to Jesus, do you think he'll take advantage of you? Does he have your best interests in mind? Boaz was a good man. Jesus was the God-man, God with us. And you have nothing to fear, putting your life in his hands. I wonder this morning, what is he asking you to do? And do you trust him? Amen.